Welcome to What the Fish, a podcast from the Field Museum starring the fish guys and friends. What's the super friends? <laughs> from the, from the, yeah, the, the League of Justice. Yeah, from the League of Justice, from the Hall of Justice. We present What the Fish. Well, uh, since Beth isn't here, I will ask you all to introduce yourselves. Hi, I'm Leo Smith, uh, curator here at the Field Museum. Uh, hi, I'm Matt Davis. I'm a postdoc here at the Field Museum. I'm Eric Algren. I'm a, a consultant for fishes. And today we have a special guest with us. Hi, I'm Hannah Owens. I'm a grad student at the University of Kansas. So what's today's topic? I think today we're going to talk about the value of collections for answering research questions. And by collections uh, in, the, in the sense of the Field Museum, you mean what exactly? What, what are the collections that you speak of? So the Field Museum has approximately 24 million specimens and artifacts. So these are not only the dinosaurs and mummies that we're sort of famous for, but it also includes things like approximately two and a half million fish specimens that we have down in the bowels of the Field Museum. So what, what many people don't understand is that the Field Museum, what, when you come here to the Field Museum of Natural History here in Chicago, what you see on display is a tenth a hundredth something, a very, very small percentage of the actual number of items that this institution has. That's Is that right? Yeah, so it's less than 1% of all the... Less artifacts. than 1% is on display. Right, because that would be, you know, 240,000 things. It's not quite that number that are on display. Yeah, and in, like, in general, right? like, I think a lot of people come to the museum, too, and they don't necessarily... They see the public exhibits, but they might not necessarily understand that there's so much of a collection, um, you know, basically being maintained in perpetuity here in the building uh, by a set of, you know, staff and researchers uh, that take care of these things. Yeah, I mean, we spend a lot of time, you know, just kind of explaining the, uh, the collection when we're doing tours or members' night events in terms of the analogy to a library. So, you know, you have a li public library somewhere, like in all the home small towns we all live in or in the big cities, and so this serves like that. There's fewer of these than there are libraries, but, you know, so we'll have two and a half million fish specimens and we'll be loaning them, you know, upwards of 50, 100 loans a year to different countries, different researchers, all so that they can do work on these specimens. As we've gotten further along in sort of databasing and sort of making an electronic version of the collection, not in terms of being able to access the specimens, but be able to use the specimen data, we can now use these for sort of meta-analyses or some other sort of form of, for, you know, sort of digital analysis. And that's randomly, this was our topic, and Hannah <laughs> happens to actually do that kind of work. And so maybe she could talk about some of her work uh, using collection data and for studies of species range. <laughs> Fix that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so um, what I'm really interested in with collections are some of our are using the uh, specimens as more of a historical record of what used to be in a place, what, and then using that information to then predict what might happen in the future. So in the example of climate change, which I'm particularly interested in, um, you might have a specimen that was collected in the 1700s or the 1800s that's been stored, preserved in a museum collection, since then, and there's really interest, there's locality information associated with that. So maybe it was collected off the coast of Cape Hatteras, and 
you don't see these fish off the coast of Cape Hatteras anymore. So that might be a clue to you that something is going on in terms of climate. And then you can go back using climate models and sort of extrapolate what was going on in the past and what's going on now. And then using that information, you can then project into the future what might happen with certain fish. And you might run into a situation where it turns out that that specimen record, because it's still stored in museums, could be a misidentification or something. Right. And so it's important to maintain the vouchers of some of these things as well. Yeah, it may turn out that that was, for example, a completely different species. And so based on that information, we could maybe even split out a new species. I know occasionally people go back through collections and they see something that's particularly odd, and they may may discover that there are... um, you know, completely new species that have been stored in the collection for 100 years, and all of a sudden you've got a brand new species on your hands just because you're able to go back and look at something that was collected in the past with new information and uh, really get a better understanding of what's going on there. I know one of the most exciting things, sort of most exciting things that's happened in my lifetime as a researcher was we started putting together GBIF or these other Mm -hmm. aggregators of collection information. And so you type in a fish, you like, you know, Caracanthus madagascariensis. And then, you know, as its name implies, maybe that should be around Madagascar. And then you start seeing a whole bunch of them show up in like Kansas or Texas. And it's because someone's got like the lat long inverted or, you know, Mm -hmm. like, so Mm -hmm. you've got a minus or a plus issue. So suddenly it's supposed to be in the Northern hemisphere, Southern hemisphere. But it was also just the idea that you could see all these little dots of all over the place. And then you would see some things that you knew that there is a caracanthus that would be maybe in sort of the Easter Islands or someplace more like that, that you would then be able to say, maybe this is this other species. There is a certain amount of prediction just of taxonomy that we can do for testing misidentifications. So it's sort of like uh, uh, in, in a way like a time machine to the recent past where you can look at things uh, uh, science was done, maybe in not the same sophisticated level we do it now, but uh, specimens were collected and notes were taken 100 years ago, 150 years ago, 200 years ago, and uh, may have been just sort of filed away like at the end of Indiana Jones, like the first one, like a big giant warehouse. Uh, because when I first saw the collections here at the museum, that's with the thought, that's, that's what occurred to me, those just endless shelves full of just thousands and hundreds of thousands of specimens that uh, are down there. Well, what I find interesting is that like on an outwards appearance, sometimes the collections appear to be very static because you'll see things that are stored in jars of alcohol or stored in these large boxes. Um, but when you get into it, you realize just how dynamic the collections are and how often they're being used, whether it's by somebody coming in to actually look at the specimen or the artifact or by people who are using databases um, and the specimen records like Hannah is doing to make predictive assessments of where biodiversity is headed given particular you know, potential changes in climate or things like that. Like, it's interesting all the different ways researchers get at different aspects of the collection um, and things that may look like they're just kind of sitting there actually being used by people all over the world um, for hundreds of different projects. So if you're doing a study on climate change, are you looking for fish that have lots of, what's best for you? Lots of records, a wide range in fish? Like, I'm just curious, thinking about it, like what kinds of collection, what, you know, because you obviously have to like do cursory searches into collection databases to get some idea of where to go. How do you pick what makes a good species for that kind of prediction, in your opinion? Yeah. So um, what I really look for, uh, and this has sort of evolved through time as I've gotten a better understanding of um, 
what it is that I need, for example. Um, so when I first started out, I just sort of, I, I did a study on coelacanths. Um, and uh, for that, it was pretty straightforward, right? You have coelacanths. Everyone knows what a coelacanth is. You're not going to get a misidentification. But the more time I've spent doing this, I've realized that if you're going to branch beyond something really sexy that's really in- easy to identify, if you're maybe doing, you know, some little goby or something, and there's a lot of maybe uh, species in the same genus, you're going to need to be really careful about misidentification. So you want something that's really obvious or that people have a vested interest in identifying correctly. So actually for the stuff that I do, I'm really interested in using fish that are of commercial interest because those are things that are very well sampled, usually have a very good record of uh, their geographic location where they were collected and, um, yeah, are very easy to identify. So those are some of the things that I, I'm basically looking for really high-quality records. Um, and if those are unavailable, I'm looking for things that are accessible so I can go back into the collection and look at the labels and see, okay, there is a latitude and a longitude here. I can look at the specimen, make sure that it's identified correctly, uh, and sort of go from there. So your research is, like, dependent going back from the database all the way to the the actual specimen itself that kind of integrates all of those aspects together. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm actually planning on going to some additional collections in the spring just to go through and verify and make sure. Because for a lot of these things that aren't very well databased, you actually have to go through by hand through the collection and really get a sense of what's going on in terms of geographic locations that way. If you're studying climate change, are fish that have a wide range or shallow range, do you think mm-hmm. going to be better? You might be too early on to yeah. use that information. Because like yeah. my gut tells me a, a narrow range would be good, but maybe if it has a wide range, you could see the change. Yeah. You could see a, mo- a movement or something. Well, there's definitely two different ways to go about it. So for fish with a really narrow range, you might just be looking for something that's got a really obvious signal. So if it's only going to tolerate maybe a five-degree shift one direction or another, you're going to be able to see the change from year to year, um, which would be really interesting from one angle. The other thing that would be interesting is for a more broadly distributed species, um, it's it's also interesting and informative because you see they uh, are exposed to a lot of different environments, and so it may be that one particular combination of factors is more important than one single variable. So maybe salinity and temperature are important, and so you get to see the interaction between those, whereas with a more narrowly distributed fish, you might not get to see the full range of uh, environmental combinations that would cause the fish to maybe prefer one habitat versus another habitat. Could, could you give an example, maybe, uh, without uh, giving away too much of what your research is? Uh, <laughs> can you give an example of maybe one of w- one species of fish that, that you've looked into and seen yeah. something with? So my dissertation is mainly focused on codfishes. So a lot of the things that most people in the Midwest, for example, would uh, recognize as the fish fillet sandwich. Um, <laughs> or the fish stick, or the fish stick. I thought or, those were those you know, rat tails that swam in the bottom. I well, they do that. They're doing that too. As they get fished down, they're going for rat tails more and more. But um, yeah, so I, and those are all really widely distributed fish, and so you're getting a really interesting picture of sort of the full range of what climate change is doing, both in terms of salinity, because these are marine fish, and um, they're Arctic and polar, or Arctic and subarctic. Excuse me. And so um, 
as the ice caps melt, salinity is decreasing in the north, and so you're going to see salinity maybe play a factor more than it used to. Mm-hmm. Uh, temperature is going to affect them more in the south and more in the northern end of their range than the southern end of their range. That's sort of the predominant hypothesis that most climate change scientists are working under. That um, in the northern hemisphere, in the extreme north and the extreme south of the globe, you're actually going to see more effective climate change than at the equator, some debate always. But um, yeah, so that's, I'm, I'm mostly looking at really broadly distributed things right now, but that also means that the signal can be kind of muddy. And like I say, isn't going to change the same in the northern part of its range than the southern part of its range. So it may just retract further north or it may, uh, it could do anything at this point. Um, I'm still. I, I imagine though that. that you get a lot of that data from commercial fisheries and from government organizations mm-hmm. that monitor these things. Where yeah. would having something like a museum collection? Where what what kind of data could you get from a, a a fish in a jar of alcohol in a museum that you couldn't get from the U.S. Department of Fish and Wildlife or whatever that that surveys this kind of an Yeah. Well, so with the fish and wildlife surveys and uh, commercial fishing, they don't ever deposit their specimens. So um, a lot of the data that I'm getting from commercial fisheries... You'd have to go to McDonald's and buy a a filet of fish sandwich (laughs) and and take a DNA sample out of there. Yeah, do a DNA sample to make sure it's a cod. (laughs) GBIF is where I get a lot of the commercial data from, but that is sort of called into question because then I can't go back and look at the specimen... Uh, to make sure that it's identified as what they say it is. What is GBIF? Uh, it's sorry, it's the Global Biodiversity and Information Facility Database, and it's a global organization. A lot of museums are now serving data through this database, so it's basically a huge meta server. So you can look at a lot of different museum collections. You can kind of see what they have. You can get locality information. You can, in some cases, see who collected the fish. You know, if there's a researcher that you think is particularly reliable when it comes to one particular group of fish, for example. Yeah, 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 if I see Matt Davis on the tag, I'm going to ignore it. (laughs) Whoa. You got to leave that one in. Yeah. But yeah, so that's, that's, um, and yeah, so with a lot of the commercial stuff and a lot of the fisher and a lot of the commercial fishery stuff, they're not actually going to be depositing a specimen. So I can't go back and verify that it is identified as what they said it was. So if there's something at the extreme north end of the range or to the extreme south end of the range, I'm like, well, it might be what they said it was, but I'm not entirely sure. And I'd really like to go back and check. Because so you trust the scientific rigor in a, in a organization, an institution like a, a museum, a collection based organization right. like this. Yeah. And, and, and you can actually look at it. Yeah. And, 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 and they identify. I was going to say, it's, it's, I think it's not necessarily that we're better or worse at it. I mean, I'm sure the commercial fishermen are better than at identifying some local oh, thing yeah. than I am. Oh, it's yeah. more just that it's permanently there. And, you know, until like a place, some places have like representative vouchers, the problem is, you know, and commercial fishermen are probably fairly aware of what the extreme ranges are of mm-hmm. things, and like at least of <laughs> colleagues of mine that have they? collected it, like in Mexico for southern extent, range extensions and things like that. Mm-hmm. They'll they'll save the, the actual fish and put it in the collections. I mean, th- like this that. is yeah. getting sort of outside the bounds of maybe what we're discussing today, uh-huh. but I think it's an interesting question: Is do commercial fisheries do they collect? scientific data do they do they measure a certain percentage of the fish that they get do they measure them do they weigh them do they take samples of seawater and measure salinity do they take water temperature uh do they collect data sort of so it depends 
It depends. Yeah, in uh, some cases it's proprietary too. So some yeah. of their data, some of their fishing grounds might be just they want to keep on, they want to hold on to that information. So they may collect they data, but it's not available yeah. to you. So yeah. it's just as so, well as not there. Yeah. yeah. So for example, I can't necessarily go in and get U.S. fisheries data for marine fisheries um, for the commercial fish that I'm interested in, but Canada does give stuff, but it's actually downsampled, so I can't see exactly where it came from. I just know within a one-degree area mm. uh, whether there was a fish there or not. But GBIF's an amazing thing to actually look at, yeah. because if you click on a GBIF and just you're like, oh, is you know you want to find out if University of Michigan's Museum of Zoology Specimens are on there, you pick some random mm-hmm. collection because you're just trying to find on, and their collection database is down for maintenance or something, and you're just trying to like run around and find something. You click on there, and you're like, my goodness, there must be... like a billion sources to this thing at this point. I mean, the Field Museum and a million Kansas, I'm sure, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. all serves their data. And the way we do it, we send a packet of all of our collection information to them. It's not all of our data, but it's a, the pieces that they want. Mm-hmm. And it, But it, it, it's thousands of collect, different collections worldwide, mm-hmm. you know, because it can be insects for one thing. I mean, it's got everything. Plants, is this something that the, the lay public can uh, access? Or yeah. is this... Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Any, anyone, anyone can get on GBIF. You can actually plot everything on a map directly from the website, which is really oh, cool. So we'll have a link to that in our web yeah i mean page. it's a yeah. it's a uh, really nice example of like a i don't know if it's exactly a non-governmental organization or what it is exactly but it's it's, <laughs> it's a powerful <laughs> lobbying group yeah it's, it's, uh, it's congress is going to watch out for big theology it's a the problem is that it's one of these things where there's competitors to some degree that and things like that or subsets of competitors it's just complicated to try and you know pull some like I think they've won and I think I'm glad they've won or something like that. But like, but you know, at the same time, it's still useful to have a fish specific one or something because things can get in there that are funny. Like the field museum dumps all of its data. And if someone, Mm -hmm. if there's a plant with the same genus name, because there's no reason that a plant and an animal can't have the same genus name, you'll run into some total thing, something that you're just like, what just happened here? And then you realize that there's a plant and a and a fish that have the same name. Well, now let me let me play devil's advocate for a second and and suggest that maybe once uh, you go through a collection very thoroughly and extract all the data you can from the specimens that you have and enter it into this database, there's no use to having an actual physical collection anymore. Why do you need? a fish in a jar of alcohol when every piece of useful data about that fish has been recorded and entered into a database. Well, a lot of that comes back to what Hannah was already talking about with the voucher specimens. Um, You're never going to have an instance where all the information has been extracted because in some cases you don't even know what information you're going to need in the future. A hundred years ago, nobody would have thought that we would be using these specimens to predict you know, climate change models or like where things are going to go. Like this is a whole new avenue of research that's probably sprung out in the last 30 years. Um, You know, we just don't necessarily know what these historical records are going to be used for. There's always just new information. And genetic data is making that only more complicated where we, I rarely run into cases where we sequence a bunch of genes and we decide that six species are actually just one. It's usually more what we now refer to as cryptic species or something where they look the same, but then with DNA sequence data, there's a lot of evidence that they've been independently breeding as populations for a long time that might be deserving of species status. Well, and the vouchers are important for us too, also in terms of all of our genetic work, because we may, we may have things where people are collecting like specimens in the field and they're taking pieces of tissue or pieces of fins for saving it for use for future genetic work. And they think they have something and then 
they find in their genetic studies that it might differ. Um, so they go back to the actual specimen and realize, oh, this was mis-ID'd in the first place, or, oh, there's something weird going on here. This, this subset of a population needs to be looked at. Uh, and, and there's all sorts of ways that this comes in handy. I mean, like, I don't remember all of the details, but when the plane went down in the Hudson, whatever that was, three years ago, four years ago, how long ago? Anyway, when that plane went down, it was, the geese had hit the, the engines on the plane. And that's mm-hmm. what, and the question was, were these migratory geese or were these ones that are permanent resident ones? And there's a way to tell that apart. And then by, by going back the to the collection, no, 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 they went back and looked at the feathers. Oh. And so you could compare the specimens that we have here, you know, and so there's, cause there's differences in the populations of those things that if you don't have the comparative material, it's all about sort of what we generally refer to as comparative biology. So preserving these actual specimens, uh, it, it might be hard. It, it's going to be hard to come up with actual concrete reasons today for why you need them that, that sort of fall outside the realm of, uh, scientific research, but, it may provide all kinds of important clues in the future about some future thing that's discovered that no one no one would know that that collection is important for it today. Maybe someday there is a new cure for cancer that involves a certain kind of polypeptide that is present in the spinal cord of fish or something like that. And 20 years from now, they're going to want to go back and look and see whether or not this was present in something in that and it would be valuable to have a collection on hand for something like that, maybe. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of reasons for things like that, but some of them are, you know, you can't, like, some of it comes down to just basic things, like you can't know what's somewhere if you don't if you don't have a collection and identify it. It's like if we go do a visual survey of someplace, mm-hmm. we'll get maybe a third of the diversity that's actually there. It's not until you go in with specialized gear and chemicals that you can go mm-hmm. identify what's there. And then it takes specialists. It's not like you can just know what everything is by sight. And so it takes time to identify the things. And then once you have it, even if you can't identify it, somebody might come along later and think it's more than one species, and then they'll be described. Yeah. I mean, there was a case, was it the largest bird, largest dinosaur? What was that thing that just happened? All, oh, the oldest dinosaur. The oldest dinosaur potential, like, sister group to all dinosaurs. You know, it was collected. It was, like, in on a shelf for 80 years, 100 years, that yeah. ballpark. Like 100 years. And then they just re, you know, rediscovered re-examined it. Re-examined I mean, it. So. You know, I mean, it, some of it is that, you know, we're also catching species that may go extinct or may have already gone extinct. And the only rep- examples we'll have, I mean, like, you know, ivory bit woodpeckers, dodo birds, the whatever that specific snail darter, the Maryland darter, um, all these, you know, whatever, whatever, pick your favorite. Paleobotany. You know, <laughs> pick your favorite extinct animal, not including fossils, but like extinct in our lifetime things um you know the specimens that we have that were collected then thankfully collected many years ago are the only ones that are left well and keeping that historical record is useful for all kinds of studies or even things that happen in the real world like for you know for example the oil spill that happened recently off the coast of louisiana like part of the initiatives going into that are, are you know trying to survey like what were the impacts of that oil spill on the biodiversity there well, the first thing scientists and researchers do is they go back to the collections of people that collected in the Gulf of Mexico over the last 100 years. And wherever that information stored, they can get a, a picture through time of what biodiversity was there to try to assess what biodiversity has been damaged now. Does it matter where the collection is? I mean, uh, again, sort of kind of playing devil's advocate uh, for a minute, the 
uh, in today's uh, uh, rapidly changing, highly electronified, connected world, uh, can't you have more or less immediate access to a fish that's in a collection halfway around the world? Does it need to be nearby? Is you might there... have access to a database about those fish, and if you're lucky, photographs. But like, there's only so many there's so, there's only so many places that actually have collections that they're storing things where they're staffed in a way that all that information is accessible and online. This being one of those places. Yeah, this is one of those places, and there's only so many places where they actually take care of those specimens in a way that they can preserve them because it's not just about collecting them; it's also about keeping them and maintaining them. And knowing or, how to find them, and, yeah. I mean, it's and what they and are, and a continual funding of them, and things. Yeah, like that. I mean, it, it costs. It does cost money to store specimens long term, but that's part of the mission of preserving specimens. Is like, yeah. I mean, if you think about the fish world, I'm guessing there's probably in the U.S. There's probably thirty five, forty major collections. You know, give or take, plus or minus five or ten. But there's probably an additional hundred and twenty five to five thousand additional collections. So like some random small university somewhere that never had an ichthyologist might still have a few ichthyology, you know, fish specimens for some comparative anatomy class, or you could have an, like a, you know, an ichthyologist there 70 years ago to 20 years ago, or you currently have an ichthyologist and all these university collections exist. And in the, none of that information is being served. Mm-hmm. So they could have, you know, specimens of the Maryland darter. They could have specimens of, of, that we just don't even know. Mm-hmm. And the, what, there, you know, there's been talk, and NSF is building different. You know, the National Science Foundation has been trying to fund, you know, things to sort of build more and more aggregation of the data, possibly moving towards a system like they have for genetic data, where there's a single database. And some of those are seem like really good ideas, but you could also make an argument that if you went to the Smithsonian, the American Museum, Michigan, Field Museum, Kansas, Calicad, Florida, whatever, you know, the main museum collections you could get 90% of the data by just hitting the top 12 or 15. Mm-hmm. And why not? You know, what should you do? Should you emphasize the million little ones or the big 15? And then, you know, it complicates things because there's justifications for both. You know, I mean, but these are the kind of decisions that as a field and as a country, we have to, you know, if we get them on one database, it makes Hannah's life easier. It sure does. <laughs> <laughs> like, and you know, a big chunk of what we need to do is figuring out what the collection value, how to increase the collection value at any given time. So it's kind of a rhetorical question, like, there's not a real answer, but what, what do you think, like, how much biology of something that we know of, <laughs> of, like, organisms of life on Earth comes from collection-based work? If you exclude model organisms? Sure. So if we exclude model organisms, it's, yeah, it's going to be huge. Like fashion them. model organisms? No, like, no, like oh, zebra, like zebra like fish, rats. I was thinking like, 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 uh, like Victoria's Secret uh, models. No, like <laughs> the, the kinds of things they study to like try to, to get death. Yeah, yeah, the developmental biology or the genetics of everything. Like zebra fish. Yeah, like yeah, the zebra sure. fish. Or. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the vast majority of fish, or not fish, of life on Earth is only known from its species description. You know, you know overwhelming, especially because it's cheating because of insects. But... You know, because of insects, they're described and never looked at again. You know, the, that's the only published rec- account of them is the species description. Yeah. And no, I mean, that's what I was thinking. I mean, like, if you, if you were to take the sum of all knowledge of biodiversity on Earth or what we know about evolution, like, a lot of it just starts somewhere at some sort of a collection, like it has to. Right. I mean, you know, there's, there's a remarkable number of times that I see some crazy fish on one of my various online pet store things. 
And then I look into it, and the only known specimen I can find in any database worldwide is the holotype. So when you describe a fish, there's a single specimen that's na- that it's named for, and this is like the key specimen. And then I just found another one in a pet store in Rhinelander, Wisconsin. You know, and you're just like, how is this possible? And part of it is that we don't, nobody knows. Half of it's going to be that the thing's misidentified in all the collections. I mean, there's so many different ways that the lack of collections or the lack of expertise or the, you know, for whatever reason, at the Field Museum, we've got a strong Indo-Pacific marine fish collection and a very strong South, sort of northern South American and Central American and Mexican collection. But I don't know anywhere in the U.S. that has strong collections of Greenland fishes or something like that. And the problem, you know, and then there's probably Norway and a few places in the Europe that have strong collections of those. But <laughs> my, my grandmother had a huge collection of Swedish fishes in a refrigerator. But she had like like specimens from all all over Sweden in there. But the problem is that you know it's real easy for us to put our collection. Well, I don't know, real easy, but it's possible for us to put our collection databases online and make them available. But it's harder and harder as you get into a more developing country to prioritize that. But half the diversity is in developed, more, more than half the diversity is probably in de- developing countries. I, what, I, what I find real interesting is this idea of, of how at the present time we don't necessarily know what the value of something is. That, that, that things that we are holding for the sake of holding them as an example might not appear to us right at this moment to be valuable for any particular reason, but that in the future people might find some some very important reason to have it around. Like when dodos were all over the place and uh, islands or wherever they were found and uh, they were killing them left and right and eating them and they were grinding them up and feeding them to their, you know, they, they, they there were so many of them and people couldn't conceive of a reason why you would want to save them. Or a carrier one. pigeon. Or a carrier pigeon. Or uh, uh, another example, um, I, I remember reading about uh, uh, in the uh, uh, 19th century when they were uh, uh, plowing through Egypt, they dug out so many mummies that they were bringing them, the, the, the uh, archaeologists, explorers and whatnot, were bringing them by train cars and shiploads, were bringing them back to England, and they were burning them as fuel. They were grinding them up and, using, and pulping them and using them in newspaper. Uh, just to create newsprint because it was so much linen and bandages and so much just dry material and they just figured who well you know we've got we've got a couple hundred of these things why would we ever want this you know a million more of them and uh, just imagine if that had been said maybe maybe we wouldn't learn anything from all that if it well, no, but, that, but that but, gets exactly at the kinds of questions that Hannah addresses if we played the game of like you know, a lot of people, when I show them the collection, they say, well, how many spe- species are here? And let's say, you know, let's say we have a fifth of all fishes or whatever the number would be. If I only had one representative of each one, Hannah's whole career would be in the toilet. Yes. <laughs> well, and there'd be 17 know. points. It'd be one at the Smithsonian, one at the American. Well, our, our career yeah. wouldn't exist because nobody would have developed the methods to take advantage of these kinds of data because the data wouldn't be there. Right. I mean, yeah, there is a lot of research that comes just out of having material available. You have yeah. to sometimes if you're pressed for time or you want another publication or you're looking for an easy project to get a student started, you're going to need something in which you already have the data available. And if we don't have the collections, those sorts of projects never start. See, you but, scientists always finding the easy way. <laughs> no, it's more like it's, it easy on the students. It's well, like it's science, how is, it is. science is fluid and it's hard. <laughs> you know, it's like anything like it's changing. Changing rapidly, our hypotheses change. 
And the way we use data is changing constantly, just like the difference in how we use genetic data from 20 years ago to now is amazing. Um, no, but it's like I was in grad school, probably like I don't even know when things like GARP and all these predictive modeling programs developed, but I remember 2000, 2001 just being like, oh, that's crazy the first time I saw it. Because for me, the, the hard part of that is figuring out the ecological habitat. So like if you were to do it in some place like Madagascar, someone's got to go around and be like, this is this kind of tree and this is the altitude and collect all this just unbelievable amount of sort of habitat data. But once you have it and then you have, then you have this layer of, I don't know what you guys call that ecological records. Mm -hmm. And then you throw on top of that. It's like, well now, well, I got all these frogs. Let me see where like, you know, the mantelid frogs distribution are. And then I start going, you know, you start playing this game and, you know, we started play, we started actually having fun with it where we, we, there were thought to be extinct rainbow fishes in Madagascar where we would then be like, well, where else might they be in that ballpark that has the same things with these right. modeling methods? And it was just, and so we went to one of them in one case. Well, I didn't do it, but a colleague of ours went to one of the places, and, that, and lo and behold, we found one of these things that was thought to be extinct from its the original discovery location. And I'm sure that there's a million examples of this, but I'm just, you know, yeah, like yeah, that. Was, but I think that was some of the first examples of how to use them. Yeah, and there's a really great paper in which they did a similar thing with uh, chameleons in Madagascar, where they had all of these really small, hard to find chameleons, and they actually were able to develop niche models based on the specimens they did have. And they then, using these models, which sort of show where there's suitable habitat based on where your locality records are, so where you've collected specimens from, they went back to places that were suitable but had no specimen records and found new species there. Just, you know, casually. And that saves a lot of money because you're focusing your field research on a specific area and you know what you're looking for. And that's another, like, that's another way in which collections can be helpful because you're getting more bang for your buck. So you're only sending somebody to, you know, the wilds of Peru once, and then you've got all this specimen material, you've got all of this material that you can then go back and look at later from the comfort of your own institution, as opposed to having to send somebody to Peru again and again and again, just to look at that one particular habitat. What, uh, let me ask you another question then about uh, collections that, that might come up. Um, how do you feel about the fact that you are killing these species that you're putting into the collections? All right, so that's a, that's a pretty good question. I mean, there's an intimate association between identifying the biodiversity of the planet and then also protecting it. But one could make the argument, and I think it's fair to make, that we don't know what's out there to protect until we know well, what's out there. And like, that's how, you know, documenting biodiversity is part of collections. It's not about like mass killing of organisms and storing them forever. It's, it's about documenting the life on the planet. And it, and oftentimes these collections, you know, we're not taking 10,000 birds from a population. It might be one or two birds. Like it's not, it's never anything that that makes any kind of harmful impact on the on the actual populations themselves. Yeah. It's such a tiny proportion of the bio, of the biomass that's there that, we're not. We're never going to be the people that kill the last of any particular one thing. Like no, I mean just... many many people that do this kind of work are some of the strongest advocates for conserving these animals or these mm-hmm. plants. And that like most of the you know it, like if people are asking to protect an area because there's a species there that's rare, the only reason we know it's rare is because we've documented what that species is, or we've documented that maybe a sub like a population 
within that species may actually be a new species that's not documented yet, but that's being done by researchers. And sometimes that work can be done without um, you know, actually killing an organism, but oftentimes it's not because you know, it's like Hannah was saying, you can't always just go back out to these, these sites and just observe things. Like some of this work has to be done in a lab, whether it's genetic or whether it's morphological or anatomical um, under the scope. Yeah, and it's not like for most of these collections, we're only collecting an animal for one particular purpose. So a lot of times when you go out on a collecting trip now, you're not just collecting the fish for tissue for your project. You're collecting the fish for your tissue for your project. You've got the actual voucher, which is going to go to somebody that's interested in the morphology of the species. And then you might also be screening that particular specimen for parasites. And that's a whole another layer of biodiversity that if you hadn't sacrificed that particular animal, you never would have Scene. Right. And you can look at the parasites and you can look at ge- the genetics of the parasites and you can look at the bacteria that live in the gut of the parasites exactly. and the genetics of the bacteria in the gut of the parasites. And uh, uh, many there's there's a wealth of information that can be extracted from one particular casualty in, right. out in the wild. And but I, I think I think it I asked the question because I think it's tough for a lot of a lot of people, uh, maybe maybe more lay people than than people in the uh, biology and in the sciences, but uh, probably for biologists too, it, it's tough to think of uh, you know every every animal life is precious. You don't you know you've got a everybody's got a pet dog or a cat or a fish at home, and you'd hate to see your cat taken and killed and put into a a collection somewhere, even if it contributes to the knowledge of humanity, because that animal is precious to you and and uh, means something, but. I think that uh, when you look at this, when you're talking about biodiversity and you're talking about ecology and you're talking about the environment, uh, one specimen is just an example of its whole species. And you, you guys as biologists are more concerned with a whole species. There, I don't think there's any scientists out there that are going out to collect just for the sole purpose of collecting. They always usually have some kind of a scientific endeavor behind them. And we also have our own rules and guidelines for how we go about collecting things, particularly vertebrates. Um, yeah, there are usually, they're usually limits. You can only collect maybe a certain number at a certain location or something like that. It's not like we're just plowing through and killing everything we see. We're often doing it in a very focused and respectful way. So mm-hmm. if maybe you've caught 10 of one particular species of shark at one location, you, st- you say, okay, I think I have a fairly representative sample for here. We don't need any and we can move on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and, when, and the samples are limited based on the types of organisms that they are. Right. And, and there are things like called, you know, like CITES protection, things that are critically endangered or endangered that, you know, are obviously maybe completely off limits to collecting or you may be really limited to maybe taking one or two samples mm-hmm. um, requiring special permits. Like all collecting, too, it's worth noting, like you're not just going into some other country or some other place and just doing this willy-nilly. Like you're doing it through the governments of those countries, you're getting special permission to do this kind of work. Like not just any person can go out and collect biodiversity. Like you have to have, um, you know, you have to go through the proper channels to do this and to do it in a respectful way. So some dude out in the backwoods of like Louisiana can't go out in his, 
out in the swamp back there and dump a bunch of poison. Like no, they haul in the fish into a net and send them to you guys and go here they are and you guys just no put them no in no a, no in a tank and study them. No, if we want to collect fishes in Louisiana, then we have to submit collecting permits there, and and it depends on the state. But some states might want to know why we want to collect the fishes, what particular species we're after, mm-hmm. um, what we plan to do with the specimens. Because that's the other thing. If you're collecting them, um, usually the places want to know that those specimens are going to be safe uh, forever, that they're, you're, they're going to go somewhere that can be stored, and like the Field Museum, where we can store them uh, and, take care, and take the proper care of them. Yeah, and we're also really, uh, they're really careful about making sure that we treat the animals as ethically and humanely as possible. So we all have to go through special training on how to sacrifice a specimen in the most efficient way possible. So there's no suffering, you know, you're trying to, you know, do, do what you need to do as quickly as possible, get it out of the way. So you're not, yeah. Yeah, we're not trying to torture any animals. No, no, we're not torturing anybody. We're, yeah. Especially vertebrates. If you're an invertebrate, well, yeah, (laughs) no no rules there. Yeah, nobody really cares about invertebrates. Although, apparently. Now we're going to have, now now Twitter's lighting up. I can see it already. Well, but they're actually talking about. Cuttlefish Brigade. Yeah, yeah, they're they're talking about instating similar regulations to what we have for vertebrates for things like cuttlefish and octopi, things that have demonstrated. Yeah, they've. Things that demonstrate too much intelligence, they tend to be well, too <laughs> much intelligence. Too much intelligence. You're too smart. They know that we're causing them. <laughs> yeah. 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 The, uh, what about um, collecting in places where um, maybe the uh, rule of law is uh, uh, and uh, rules of sort of ethics for treatment of animals maybe aren't as stringent as they are in uh, 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 Western countries, let's say, uh, collecting in in uh, uh, maybe uh, uh, war-torn areas of Africa or in remote areas of China. And, well, uh, we still observe our own law, our own collecting laws, regardless of where it is that we're collecting. We still have to answer to our same yeah, we, U.S. agencies. We pretty much have to default to whoever is the strictest about ethical treatment mm-hmm. and you know collection numbers and things like that. Especially if it's funded through something, say, like the National Science Foundation. Um, you know, there are particular guidelines that you have to follow. And even like if you go to submit a paper, say for scientific publication, oftentimes those journals or the places where you'd want to publish the paper want some documentation or some evidence that you treated the animals humanely or that you didn't break any protocols mm. in these kinds of yeah, and, so you and, couldn't go to like Uganda or Zaire or something, not to single those countries out as being particularly bad, but just as an example, mm-hmm. you couldn't go there and if some guy says, I'll sell you 12 gorillas for oh, a certain amount. Oh, no, 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 no. That would never just, happen. You, couldn't, no, no. you also couldn't deposit those specimens in any museum. You have to demonstrate that you collected them completely legally before you deposit things. So, yeah, I can't just like stuff a gorilla in my suitcase and bring it back and be like, here you go, Field Museum. You want it? They're not going to take it. Yeah, the collection of specimens is heavily regulated on basically every front, from the, the ethical treatment of the animals to the actual collecting to the depositing of the specimens. It's very, very much um, watched over by all kinds of agencies. And at the end of the day, it's about expanding our knowledge of biodiversity and evolution and science or culture. Yeah. So the collections are important for. It sounds it sounds like one of the prime primary reasons why collection are, collections are important is for uh, uh, biodiversity and uh, uh, ecology and conservation uh, issues. Uh, that's that's some of the primary reasons why having these things are, are important. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah. And I'd say there's all kinds of historical information, too, because 
like we've been pre- we've been predominantly talking about zoological collections, but there's also paleontological collections, which give us some inference into the history of the Earth and what life was like before that. There's also anthropological collections. Um, the mummies, I was talking about. Yeah, like about. the mummies, like things that give us insight into human culture and how human culture has changed over time in different cultures. Um, well, and you can even go as far as art museums also keep collections of things that they never show to the public, you know, yeah. and libraries, back to libraries. Yeah. Exactly. You know, just because you've read a book doesn't mean you're never that doesn't mean you're never ever ever going to look at that book again. You might remember something about it, and you want to go back and take a look at a passage that you maybe forgot, and you want to refresh your memory. And yeah. in that case, yeah, and just because are, a book is available on Project Gutenberg doesn't mean you want to go and tear down the library and throw away the physical copy. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean that's part of that, and it gets back to the whole point of the collections: is there's all this potential there that isn't necessarily actualized yet, but can be in the future. And we don't even necessarily know what that's going to be yet because the avenues of research haven't even been developed yet. Like things are constantly changing. Yeah. I I find that really, that idea really fascinating is that it's impossible to see beyond today what the future needs, what, what, what future reasons would be. No, if you think about like some of the famous natural history collectors, like if you look at, if you think of like Alfred Russell Wallace, like when he was initially collecting fishes. The Malay archipelago, the that guy. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 When he was collecting stuff, I don't think in his day he was ever envisioning that somebody would use that kind of information for like what Hannah is doing her research on. Hmm. Like his primary goal at that point was just documenting biodiversity. Like what are all of these organisms? Like what are these plants? What are these animals? What are these fish? Because to science, those fish had never been seen before. Like they might have been seen by native populations, mm-hmm. but they hadn't necessarily been documented in a broad way that everybody knew what they were. Well, yeah, and back in Alfred Russell Wallace's day, they had no idea what DNA was. They had right. no idea that DNA could be used to infer the evolutionary history of any of these organisms. Right. I mean, that's, you know, everything's just changed so much. And, and well, and even 50 years ago, who was keeping genetic DNA collections? Nobody. Right. Um, but now, you know, keeping a genetic DNA collection is almost just as important as keeping whole specimens because of the applications that it's a whole other like avenue of research that people weren't even thinking about. And the same with databases. People were keeping specimen records and ledgers and writing all this information down, but more like a library system just to keep track of the specimens. Mm -hmm. You know, the wide use of all this database information has really kind of turned a corner in terms of like bioinformatics and things in the last maybe decade. I mean, it's uh, pretty... Like the kinds of stuff that Hannah is doing is much is very much an emerging field. Yeah. Well, and we're also getting better and better at going back and getting DNA from old specimens. So things where I was going to ask about yeah, that. Can, so can you get DNA from old specimens? You can. It's at more difficult, age. and it's yeah, past a certain age, it's no good anymore. So they just they just did a paper yeah, on, on this, the half like, life on the half life of DNA. So yeah, you can't. We're definitely not going to be able to get the DNA of a T-Rex, but we might be able to get the DNA of something that's like 10,000 years old. Yeah, so it turns out Jurassic Park is impossible. It's really too bad. Yeah, (laughs) but a dinosaur is not going to happen. When you collect DNA from a... We all, hopefully all of us know that uh, DNA is is, uh, present in all of the uh, somatic cells, uh, not in blood cells, red blood cells and certain other exceptions maybe, but... Uh, I can't think of right now, but DNA is present in all these cells. But what kind of tissue do you do you look for 
Um, and are there? T- I know that in certain tissues, DNA is more active, like in liver cells. Uh, uh, DNA is very active. They have a large and active nucleus, and you can see it under a microscope. Uh, do, uh, are there any like body tissues that you look for that are going to have higher concentrations of DNA per per, per unit volume or or per mass? Or is uh, how does that work? Well, part of it, like for the work that we do, there are certain areas of the body, depending on the organism that you use, that has DNA that the the tissue has DNA that we can extract in an easier way, given the protocols we're using. And so like, like, so it has to do with like the the mechanical process. Yeah, of extracting the DNA. And like for fish, like a really common thing to use is either is either muscle or fin clips themselves. And then we we can lyse the cells and get the DNA out that way. That's just a pretty common thing. But but in theory, you could get DNA out of all kinds of things you get. Yeah, so for a lot of these historical specimens, and birds anyway, I don't know. They're they're doing it with fish now, but formalin breaks down DNA, and so it can be challenging to get. Yeah, formalin is a long-term preservative stuff. that we put a lot of specimens in to fix them. What we call fixing them, but keeping them preserved you know, for hundreds of years. It's something that keeps them from decomposing. Mm-hmm. But that chemical um, degrades and damages DNA in, in such a fashion that it's hard for us to to reliably sequence and amplify DNA. Yeah, so some people try, but it's not very reliable. But so for bird specimens, for example, you can actually, uh, a lot of the time, a lot of times what they uh, preserve for bird specimens is you have a dried skin. So you take the body of the bird out of the skin and you replace it with cotton. Mm -hmm. So you don't have any muscle tissue left. But what you can do is you can look at the toe pads of their feet and you can take clips of skin from those toe pads and use that information Mm. and extract DNA from there. It might not be as clean. It might be uh, broken up into smaller pieces, but they're getting better and better at getting more useful information out of that kind. And of you don't need an entire genome sequence. Most often, you're looking for a short segment that you're interested in. You're interested in some sort of the strand yeah. of DNA that codes for a certain histone protein or some. Yeah, so it right? it has to be more focused. You can't do yeah, you can't do a complete genome on you know a dodo anymore because we don't have any. What kind of DNA information would could you collect from? A lot Something of a like lot that. of times it's things like uh, phylogeographic studies. So when you're looking at populations of one species, spread oh, so you'd, out be, over, you'd use it to compare to other yeah, DNA yeah. sequences so, from other. Yeah, so you might so, have sequences from other uh, members of the same species, but you don't have any from one particular place because maybe that species was extirpated a hundred years ago. But you I have this you. one specimen that was collected, and maybe you can get something out of that that might indicate whether it was more closely related to one or the other of extant species. I see. Do uh, uh, do private people still collect uh, scientific purposes? I mean, I, I know like you were talking about Alfred Russell Wallace and, you know, back in the, back in the great ancient times of, uh, of naturalism, yeah, uh, these guys would have uh, huge collections of butterflies and they would keep it in their manor house, you know, and, and uh, does, does that kind of thing still exist out there? Are there, are there private there, individuals that have collections? Are. I think there are some consult? people that make private collections of insects. Yeah, or... I, I don't think it, it's not really practical or legal to do like private collections of birds, for example. Yeah, but, I think most vertebrates. It's yeah, illegal. no. But, but there are people that pin insects and keep them in boxes or like, or maybe not even a lot, maybe not even life, but like things that are alive. But there are lots of people that make collections of rocks, yeah, or gems. Um, or you know, if you go shelling when you go to the beach, maybe you've got a collection of shells at home and 
That's yeah, there, there are plenty of people that make private collections. Some are, like Cam said, sometimes it's illegal and sometimes it's not. Like, it's not legal to go out and collect vertebrate uh, dinosaur bones, for example. Like, like, that's all heavily regulated, too, by the government. Really? So if I were wandering through uh, 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 some land in Utah and I stumbled across a, a, a toe of uh, some uh, uh, dinosaur, I couldn't pick that up and put it in my pocket and take it home, show no, it to all my friends? totally illegal. Like you're, really? you're supposed to report that to the Bureau of Land Management. Wow. Like what, if I, what if I were at like a, a nature park or something like that and there was a turkey feather lying on the... Totally on the, illegal. I can't pick up a turkey feather no. and take it nope. home? And, nope. And, because and, they can't, you can't necessarily prove that you didn't kill the bird to get the feather. Like there, there are all kinds of reasons why, but like that's one of the main ones, you know. There are, I don't have any dinosaur bones or turkey feathers <laughs> at my home right now. So I don't know. They're pretty specific examples. I do have a shell collection uh, uh, that I built up over the years, but I don't have anything in my shell collection that's not allowed to be collected. One of the things that, that um, you couldn't get in a shell collection was a golden cowrie. Mm-hmm. That was one of the ones that was prohibited. And the emerald tree snail was always prohibited and and uh, certain shell shops I went to when I was a kid would have those on display behind the counter and they would say these are not for sale you may look at them and we have them because we collected them before a certain time but we're not allowed to sell them to anybody and I always thought to myself gee I wonder if I made them enough of an offer would they actually sell that to me of course and I don't have those specimens and I wouldn't consider doing it now um, but uh, uh, are there things in the collection here at the museum that are uh, uh, outside of, like, these general laws? Are there any, like, uh, rare specimens or things that are prohibited from uh, being collected now? In the, yeah, in I mean, the like, the, one of the things that you like that we break out for Members' Night, um, for people in the local area, you can come during Members' Night in the spring and, and see the collections, like, behind the scenes for yourself. But, like, we have huge pristis um, oh yeah, that's great. Yeah, the, the, the uh, sawfish rostrum. Yeah, the sawfish rostrum. Oh, that's amazing. Those yeah. like we have some samples of those of the rostrums that were collected quite a long time ago, and that you know all the pristis are critically endangered now. Like to get the permits to collect one of those things today would be very difficult. Um, and it just you know there's some types of organisms that it's just not looked highly upon if you're going out and collecting those particular things like. Things like that. You know. So having one in the collection, uh, having uh, I know that one that I showed at the members' night was like a hundred years old. That right. one specimen, and having that on hand as part of your collection might actually help in a really tangible way uh, 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 issues regarding uh, conservation and ecology. Because yeah. you don't have to go out and collect a new one because we have one. Right. If you want to study it, there's one in the collection already there. Right. And somebody who was like trying to who was working on studying that group of um, you know, the Chondrichthian tree of life, they might want to come here and and examine those specimens. You know, they or they probably already have. You know, that's the kind of thing where a collection is invaluable. What about the coelacanth? Can you collect those? Uh that also requires special permits, although they are collect they are collected all the time by fishermen, say, in Southeast Asia. But if I wanted to go out and collect a coelacanth, it's not so simple. You know, that would be that would require very special permits. Hmm. Um, yeah, coelacanth that you've got down there. you got a couple. but uh, Yeah, there's three specimens, I think. Three pretty nice coelacanth specimens. Yeah. Oh, man, they're stinky. But, but there are things like that. Weird. There's a, The herb collection has Komodo dragons. 
Oh that yeah, seen I've seen that. A, yeah, that's got that clear top tank. Yeah, yeah, it's got a really nice tank of Komodo dragons, which is pretty cool. But like again, I bet that's not easy to get permits to collect a Komodo dragon. Um, you look like you've tried and failed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, and it's it's like, like, like uh, you have like this sad. Yeah, I wish I could hunt head. a Komodo dragon. Uh, <laughs> ever since ever since I saw the freshman, I wanted to know what a Komodo dragon tastes like. I don't think I'd want to try and hunt a Komodo dragon. I think I'd lose. Yeah, and, like, and, and it, it'd follow you around for weeks while you died of uh, blood Yeah, like six or seven of them, they'd all track you down and follow yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, unlike James Bond, where <laughs> yeah. just dragged them into the darkness and ate them immediately. Yeah. yeah. Which is interesting. No, I mean, there's some interesting things in the Field Museum collection here. We have the Lions of Savo, which are obviously... That's, that's something that... Of historical importance. Anymore. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's the other thing. It's, there's all kinds of historical importance to any aspect of the collection, and we highlight certain things... Um, but there are lots of aspects of the collection that are really important that people just don't get to see on a daily basis. Like there's more, there's more to the field museum collections than Sue and the lines of Sabo. Those might be the faces of the collections, mm-hmm. but there's a lot more to the collection. There's Bushman. That. that was a zoo gorilla, famous uh, zoo gorilla <laughs> at, the, at the Lincoln Park Zoo, I believe. If you want to agree disagree or want to ask what the fish tweet us your question or send us a topic suggestion at fm underscore what the fish so if you're enjoying our podcast you can also find us on itunes and if you're enjoying it and you are on itunes please uh rate and give us a comment and for this week so long and thanks for all the fish (laughs) 